The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. In Australia, the dystopian future is coming in with the tide. Thousands of face masks have washed up on the New South Wales coast from the beaches at Sydney to Tuggera Lake, about 90 minutes north. What is it, the opening scene of Invasion of the Face Snatchers? There are as yet no stories of lone swimmers a little too far out being dragged down by the elasticated straps of a waterlogged mask around their toes. playing that music. Oh, as a public service reminder that face masks go over your jaws. Thanks. Very helpful. Uh, unlike the mayor in Jaws, the mayor in Waverley has closed Malabar Beach because of fears that the face masks are contaminated with the coronavirus. The masks are from China, so that's pretty much a given. The good news is they didn't swim there or fly there they fell off a container ship, so that means the Wuhan Institute of Virologists attempts to crossbreed a bat and a face mask are still at an early stage. Oh. May 27th, 2020. Oh. From my house arrest to yours. Oh. It's your Stein Show Coronacopia. Everybody was Kung Flu fighting. Those stats climbed fast as lightning. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. Chai comes of expert timing. There were funky Chinamen from funky Wuhan town. They were chopping bats up. They were chowing them down. It's an ancient Chinese dish And everybody says delish Chairman Z will book your flight You'll be in Italy tonight And everybody starts Kung Flu dying Those Chacoms can't stop lying Okay, okay, that's, uh, that's enough of that. The CDC, which can't be relied on for anything, as Dr. Burke said, the CDC has warned that with no scraps of food from the restaurants and sports stadium concession stands, rats are turning carnivorous and eating each other. We'll be doing that too once the food chain is totally dead. A Florida man, Florida man Brian Woods from Dania Beach, is manufacturing face masks out of snakeskin, pythons, in fact. So maybe those masks on the beach in New South Wales are just uh, converted pythons that swam there from Florida. But that's what it's come down to now. Not snakes on a plane, but snakes on your face. What about if we combine it uh, with the Deborah Burke scarf look and just... Uh, wrap a boa constrictor around our mouths. While Western leaders have been busy destroying their economies and slaughtering the inmates of their old folks' homes as a sacrifice to the corona gods, Beijing 
has been taking advantage of the distraction to intensify its plans for the post-Western world, not just in Hong Kong, but uh, elsewhere too. In Hong Kong, China's proposed new laws would prevent foreign judges uh, hearing so-called national security cases, a, uh, a category that you can bet will expand greatly if they get their way. Right now, Hong Kong retains its English legal system and uh, so on its court of final appeal, two-thirds of the judges are from uh, Commonwealth countries, the, uh, the UK, Canada, Australia. Beijing agreed to that uh, because the people of Hong Kong did not wish to live under Communist Party pseudo-law, having known what a real legal system is. The Chai Coms now want to trash that, and Beijing Boris in London, who to the best of my knowledge does not yet have a mistress from Huawei, uh, remains silent on this matter. But beyond Hong Kong, Chairman Xi is also making plans. He's changed administrative arrangements for disputed islands in the South China Sea, through which 30% of the world's shipping passes. Uh, while, say, France's economy has shrunk by 20% in this second quarter, China's is still sufficiently robust uh, to increase its military budget by nearly 7% this year. That's the official statistic, so discount for the usual Beijing lies. China is now the second biggest military power on the planet, and its massive expansion through the last decade was paid for entirely, as I explained in After America, uh, by U.S. taxpayers through interest payments on America's federal debt. As I said, this is a hinge moment of history. The cartel of woke billionaires who day by day control ever more the world's access to news and information are happy to use social justice as a cover uh, for advancing China's agenda. At Google YouTube, videos that use certain phrases that offend the Chinese Politburo have been automatically disappeared. YouTube professes to be mystified by this. Don't worry about it. It's just a glitch in the algorithm. They're trying to find out about it and uh, sort it out. The lessons Big Social have learned doing Beijing's bidding in the hugely lucrative Chinese market are now being applied elsewhere. Yesterday, for the very first time, Twitter placed a fake news warning on a Trump tweet about the upcoming election. Uh, we have not quite a global news monopoly, but we are getting close. A tight cartel, Facebook, YouTube, Google... Uh, that is a de facto monopoly publisher that officially will publish anything but puts a warning label only on one side of political speech. So what's the point of the First Amendment in that case if you no longer have a culture of free speech from the people who patrol and police that culture? Meanwhile, uh, politically correct virtue signalling uh, is merely a pretty face mask, forever tighter Chinese thought throttling. Kamala Harris's Senate resolution, I mentioned this last week on Rush, bemoans racist terms like Wuhan virus and Kung flu. Kung flu. 
Uh, so we're criminalising jokes now? Gee, what sort of countries do that? To reprise my old line, China's not getting more like us, we're getting more like China. That may be why American politicians are letting their inner big brother freak flag fly. Governor Murphy of New Jersey... This is the guy who told us uh, we got used to the 9-11 shoeless shuffle and all the other TSA security theatre and will soon get used to the Corona security theatre too. Uh, Governor Murphy just tweeted, wear a mask. That's it. That's the tweet. And the same half-wit, short-sighted so-called conservatives who shipped everything from manufacturing to medicine to a communist state also did the cosy deals with Silicon Valley that means, in effect, U.S. taxpayers are subsidising big social as it destroys all alternative outlets for speech and information on the planet. How many Americans, Britons, Europeans had even heard of Huawei until a few months back? Mike Pompeo told my old chum Rowan Dean down under on uh, telly over the weekend that getting into bed with Huawei could get Australia kicked out of the Five Eyes intelligence sharing. US, UK, Canada, Oz, New Zealand. The US Embassy uh, walked that back a bit after the show, but as a practical matter, Pompeo's right. You can't have Five Eyes if there's a sixth eye in Beijing getting in on everything you're up to. And again, I make the point, 20 years ago, Americans were told, forget about manufacturing, it's never coming back. We're no longer in the widget business. Get used to the so-called knowledge economy. That's what we are now. We don't make anything. We're the knowledge economy. No one uses that phrase now because somehow the knowledge economy wound up in China too. Apple makes everything in China, but even if it didn't, Huawei is bigger than Apple anyway. In After America, I put in a, a vignette from England's Industrial Revolution. A bloke on the factory floor happened to glance at a one-thread wheel that had toppled over, and he noticed that both the wheel and the spindle were still turning. And so James Hargreaves invented the spinning jenny, and there followed the other brilliant gins and mules and frames and looms, and Britain and the world were transformed. The spinning jenny. Something fell over, and someone passing by thought, hmm, if you move your factories to China, you aren't there when the wheel falls over. There's a price to be paid when you sever where things are made from where things are thought because eventually you don't really think anymore. Small sign of the spirit of liberty. In Paris, the public parks are locked, but each night a man known only as Jose goes around the city, unpicking the locks and opening the gates. They seek him here, they seek him there, those Frenchies seek him everywhere. Is he at the Tuileries or the Triomphal Arc? That damned elusive Pimpernel of the park. And now, from the land where everything is policed except crime... Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. Is it never glad, confident lockdown again? It seems like only yesterday the Metropolitan Police could turn up at any London park 
and send a cowed citizenry scattering in all directions. Guys, you can't stay on the green. Can you all go home? Can you all go home, please? It's not a holiday. It's a lockdown, which means you don't just come in sunbathe. Can you please just leave? It's not a holiday, it's a lockdown. I believe that's the motto of the Metropolitan Police. It's on their helmets. The government has a lockdown in force. Can you please get off the green and go home? Happy days and terrorising sunbathers is obviously far more agreeable work than solving the latest stabbing or putting a grooming gang out of business. But then Boris Johnson's Svengali, Dominic Cummings, decided to drive his four-year-old autistic son to stay with his grandparents, and various hack Anglican bishops promptly declared him the worst example of government officials since Pontius Pilate, and the media are baying for his blood. And while not up on all the details, what the British public seem to have taken away from the case is that if this bloke can leave the house and roam hither and yon, why can't they? It's obviously been a warm day. I've driven around a few parks, uh, spoken to people uh, who are in groups of three or more, um, and just sort of politely asked them what they're up to and, and what they're doing. Um, and the response I've got from quite a few people is, oh, well, lockdown's over now, isn't it? Um, why, why should we bother? But a good sort of half a dozen people I spoke to today when I've said to them, well, why, why do you say that? Why do you say lockdown is over? And they say, oh, well, government can do what they want. Um, and, and as a police officer, I, I don't know what to respond back to them. I don't know. <laughs> we, we don't speak for government. We, do, we just enforce the rules. Um, so I, and I don't yeah. know what the answer we're meant to give back is. Well, you could always try, have a nice day and enjoy your picnic. That's Scott, a policeman with the Met, calling into LBC, which I used to be on a long, long time ago. I think every Thursday or Friday morning, whatever it was, with Michael Parkinson. Happy days. But Scott is not happy. And he blames this Cummings bloke for querying his pitch. You're, you're saying that you absolutely have come across people that have used what has happened over the last weekend as an excuse not to follow the lockdown rules. There, there are three people who have said that to me today. There are, there are there's three separate groups of people who have said to me today, well, if Dominic Cummings can do what he wants, so I actually think two people specifically said him, one person said the government, by which I automatically assume he's talking about this, um, can do what they want then we should be able to too. So why are you bullying me, Mr. Officer? Is kind of along the lines of, of the conversations that I've had today. And, um, and it, it, I really don't know what to say back to them. I think it, it makes mm. it a really difficult response. Why are you bullying me, Mr. Officer? That indeed is the question of the last two months. And if it has taken till May... For the public to start asking it, then better late than never. It just makes our job a lot more difficult um, when, when we're being posed these types of questions on what is already a really difficult task of policing a, a sort of wishy-washy lockdown as we have it now. And a wishy-washy lockdown is no fun for coppers who like to berate you for standing in your garden or exercising insufficiently vigorously in the park. After two months of fining the citizens for such nonsense... Officer Scott is now wondering what it was all for. He's riddled with self-doubt. I've given people tickets for sitting in, in London parks on benches who are refusing to move on, who are breaking lockdown rules, um, which means they have to pay a fine, etc. I just don't see now how I, how I can go to bed tonight knowing that I've, I've made people pay fines for, for breaching lockdown if it just seems that if you're powerful and wealthy enough um, that you can do whatever you want. Yeah. 
I agree. Uh, I think it's um, it slightly makes a mockery of the whole thing, doesn't it? That's uh, Tom Swarbrick, the presenter. Dominic Cummings didn't make a mockery of the whole thing. It is a mockery. A mockery of English liberties. But that doesn't seem to bother anyone, least of all uh, Mr Swarbrick there. So if it takes Dominic Cummings to get the British public to tell Scott where to stick his wishy-washy lockdown, then God bless him. And if Scott really doesn't know how he can go to bed at night after fining people for sitting on park benches, well, he could always stay up, go out and try... Oh, what's the expression they used to use? Solving a crime. In these trying times, we could all use a little diversion. Watch Mark Stein's readings of work by poets from Robert Browning to Robert Service in Stein's Sunday poems. Whether it's Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn, John McRae's in Flanders Fields, or James Montgomery's Greenland, Stein brings you the rhyme, rhythm, and reason behind classics and lesser-known delights. Stein's Sunday poems are available exclusively at www.steinonline.com for members of the Mark Stein Club. View the full catalogue at www.steinonline.com poems. And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week. We're coming to the close of the Mark Stein Club's third birthday month, and you know how this works. When we turned one year old, I hosted a cavalcade of number one hits with me talking to Andy Williams, Banana Rama, Paul Simon uh, from the Stein Archives and uh, other artists who've had number one records. And then when we turned two years old, I hosted a cavalcade of number two hits with artists who've had number two records. And now we turn three years old, and I'm locked out of the Stein archives by this lousy lockdown so in lieu of our one hour annual special we're doing our number three hits piecemeal and making do with what's to hand and what's to hand this week is the rock colossus randy backman as many of you know randy and his son tal have been uh, a big part of our live events our cruises and christmas shows in recent years uh, there's a couplet of randy's i've always liked uh, because as i told him uh, a couple of years back I've been self-employed almost all my life and there aren't many songs that mention being self-employed it's not a useful word for a lyricist except if you ever get annoyed look at me I'm self-employed I love to work at nothing all day he rhymed it too if you ever get annoyed look at me I'm self-employed after the Guess Who in the 60s, Randy created Backman Turner Overdrive in the 70s. And here's how he explained to me uh, how they created their hits. Uh, I was producing Backman Turner Overdrive, mm. BTO, and um, trying to create a new kind of music that kind of had pop uh, verses, huh. nice, cute, jangly thing, and then a big, powerful, monster chorus. Right. So I had to have a song that had a light part, and most BTO had a light verse and a real heavy chorus, and then they, they called it heavy rock and then became yeah. heavy metal. They just played it heavier. And that's how this song works too, except that it took the best part of a decade between the light pop verse and the big heavy chorus. Randy started it way back when with the Guess Who, and he just heard the Beatles, paperback writer, and he wanted to write a song like that, so he wrote one about the band's studio engineer who got up every morning and caught the 8.15 train into the city to work in the studio all day. They get up in the morning from the alarm clock's morning Take the 8.15 into the city 
There's a whistle up above and people pushing, people shoving, and the girls, they try to look pretty. At which point, there was a chorus that went, well, I'll let Randy do it. If you ever get annoyed, look at me, I'm self-employed, and I love to work at nothing all day. White collar worker, <laughs> just like paperback <laughs> I love this song. <laughs> you know, when you write a song, you love it. It's just like your new baby. It's this baby beautiful, and other people are like, hmm. White Collar Worker, and the rest of the guests who hated it because they thought it was a lousy knockoff of Paperback Writer and they refused to play it. But Randy always liked it, or at least he liked the verses. It was when you got to the White Collar Worker thing that it all went south. Flash forward the best part of a decade and Randy's driving into Vancouver for a gig and disc jockey Daryl B is on the radio using his familiar catchphrase and at some point it clicked. Put the verse of White Collar Worker to Daryl B's catchphrase and suddenly you're in business. The song was born that night uh, live on stage and shortly thereafter it was on the charts. Number 14 in Australia, number 12 in America and number 3 in Canada for Backman Turner Overdrive. Michael Bublé thing. Uh, a few years back, you made a, a couple of albums, not exactly in Bublé territory, but you did a, uh, some standards, or you did that old feeling, yeah, and it, exactly like you. But you also did taking care of business in a uh, pared back uh, kind of way. Uh, uh, I've done that on a jazz album, and mm. I specifically did that style for Stevie Ray Vaughan, mm. whose A&R guy asked me to write a third verse for it. Right. And I did and recorded it and sent it to Stevie and he unfortunately had the helicopter accident and never recorded it. Let's work easy as fishing. You could be a musician. If you could make sounds loud or mellow, get a second hand guitar, chances are you go for. If you can get it with the right bunch of fellows. Taking care of business, but just darling it back a notch, just a bit. 
Has he got any other versions of taking care of business? Well, since you ask, yes, yes, he has. It's that time of year again to get some paper and a pen and write your Christmas letter to St. Nick. Send it to the North Pole, to his workshop in the snow, and he'll put his house to work in. on the Christmas show last year. Do you, do you remember Christmas shows that you'd have like audiences, bands, singers, actors, comedians all crammed in together in one room, no social distancing? Governor Whitmer of Michigan says, forget it. It's never coming back. She says the science is settled and it's unsafe to sing. It'll kill you, public singing. But who knows? One day the lockdown may end. Live musical performances will be decriminalized. And Randy Backman will be on stage with us singing Taking Care of Christmas, a bona fide rock classic via a paperback writer, a white-collar worker, and Santa Claus. And the final number three hit of our birthday month. Taking care of business, it's all mine. Taking care of business and working overtime. This music means. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Byron Winchell, a first fortnight founding member of the Mark Stein Club from Ohio, writes, This realisation has come very late to me. Habeas corpus? To contest a citizen's illegal incarceration? There's a thought, Byron. For our non-common law listeners, habeas corpus is, in the famous phrase from Blackstone's Laws of England, the great and efficacious writ in all manner of illegal confinement. Uh, Because it's so straightforward, upon a petition from the detained, or a pal of his, because uh, sometimes you're being held incommunicado, the court commands the detainer, Governor Murphy, say, to show us the body, habeas corpus, and account for his actions. The great jurist A.V. Dicey said it was worth a 100 constitutional rights, and it's open to anybody. What's been going on is not quarantine, which, as we've discussed, means 40 days, and we're over twice that now, and in any case, it's a term one applies to the sick, and its transfer to the general population is creepily Orwellian, And American jurisprudence uh, is not favourable to general application of specific remedies. The California Court of Appeals, 1948, it would seem unnecessary to state that the delegation of such complete authority over one of the most fundamental of our constitutional rights, the right of personal liberty, must of necessity carry with it the obligation to exercise such unusual powers only when, under the facts as brought within the knowledge of the health authorities, 
reasonable ground exists to support the belief that the person so held is infected. However, that is not to say that in order to warrant the exercise of such powers, it is necessary for a health officer to first determine that one is afflicted with such disease before subjecting such person to quarantine. All that is required is that there be probable cause to believe the person so held has an infectious disease. Probable cause cannot be applied to the general population by definition, probable cause that applies to everybody is an oxymoron. So probable cause has no meaning if everybody is covered by it. So what's been going on is not quarantine, but house arrest, which is a form of detention for which previously one had to have been convicted of a crime. You can say, well, yeah, but three months isn't that long. But it's actually longer than many criminal sentences. Look at Laurie Lachlan, say. So it would be an interesting case to bring before a court, even if I'm pretty certain a lout like Governor Murphy would argue that he had the right to suspend habeas corpus in an emergency. Three American presidents have suspended habeas corpus, Lincoln, Grant uh, and FDR. A fourth, George W. Bush, attempted to do so with respect to Guantanamo detainees, but the Supreme Court overturned it. And it seems to me that if America's high court says foreigners in a camp on a foreign island are entitled to habeas corpus, then maybe even New Jersey citizens are. Or am I just being hopelessly naive? Well, at least in Gitmo, the weather's fine, the huts are cool and airy. And as I've discussed before, the baklava's pretty good. Mark Stein's Last Call. Today's Last Call raises the interesting question of whether all those insipid, tasteful, genteel interviews of authors you hear on national public radio are in fact total bollocks. That's to say, this would have been a rather different Last Call had we done it two or three days ago. Back then, all the way back to this last weekend, H.G. Carrillo was just another one of those professional identity group writers. Nothing against it, just not my bag. You get the gist from the headline in the Washington Post. Cuban-American author H.G. Carrillo, who explored themes of cultural alienation, dies at 59. From the obituary itself, Mr. Carrillo was seven when his father, a physician, his mother, an educator, and their four children fled Fidel Castro's island in 1967. Got it. Cuban boy, exiled in America, foot in both worlds, living on the fault line of cultural alienation, etc., etc., etc. Hence, the gay Cuban-American novelist's debut novel, about being gay and Cuban-American. Carrillo's first novel, Losing My Spanish, focuses on the struggles of Chicago's Cuban-American community. Terrific. Anything else? Oh, yes. Quote, Growing up, he was something of a prodigy as a classical pianist, and by his late teens was performing widely in the United States and abroad. Oh, fantastic. Very impressive. When his sister read the obituary in the Washington Post, she felt obliged to contact the paper and point out a, a, a few minor errors. 
Ash Carrillo was not a piano prodigy playing in concert halls around the world while still a teenager. He never had any lessons, uh, but he could pick out a few tunes on the old Joanna in the living room to amuse his friends and family. OK? Any other corrections while you're at it? Oh, yes. Ash Carrillo didn't flee Castro and was not, in fact, born in Cuba. He was an African-American, born Herman Carroll, and raised in Detroit with not a bit of Cuban blood or Cuban heritage anywhere in his family. He was no more Cuban than Strom Thurmond. Like Justin Trudeau, he was playing dress-up, but he did a much better job of it. I'm going to be reading from a brand-new novel that's called Twilight of the Small Havanas, and uh, it's a novel, oddly enough, you remind me, uh, that takes place in one evening, and it happens to be an evening in which uh, it's announced probably for the 1100th time that Fidel Castro is dead. And the character we're go I'm going to introduce this evening, this is her introduction to the novel. I don't really know what her birth name is. I have no idea what her mother named her because when she immigrated from the island to the United States, she changed her name to Nancy Sinatra. Seamos realista, hagamos lo imposible. Is tattooed in Gothic letters across the boy's shoulders. A blue, green, purple, and yellow snake slithers through the A's and the O's, wraps its body around the peaks of the M's and the S's, and coils its tail around his left bicep. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Just as that blue, green, purple, yellow snake slithers around the lettering of the Hispanic tattoo, so Ash Carrillo's carefully constructed fake autobiography slithered around the pillars of his life. Mr. Carrillo, hello. Hello, how are you? Uh, good, thanks, and thanks very much for talking with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, we certainly appreciate it. So you were born in Cuba? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and at what point did your family come to the United States? Uh, when I was seven, eight-ish, almost eight. And you were did sometime live at some of that time in in Florida, but then you went to Michigan. Right, right, right. Which is also another another place for anyone being from uh, anyone being from a tropical climate, anyone being from some kind of area. All of a sudden, simply to deal with snow mm. is an issue. Let alone culture, any of the other things that would go along with it. Uh huh. Bit skimpy on the detail, but the faint hint of an accent there at the beginning is a nice touch. Until the Washington Post amended its obituary, Senor Carrillo's husband, Dennis Van Engelsdorp, a professor of entomology at the University of Maryland, had assumed he'd spent the last five years living with a Cuban concert pianist who'd simply lost interest in the piano. To be sure, he occasionally wondered why he was never allowed to meet his spouse's family. I never understood why he would never introduce me, said Professor Van Engelsdorp. Now I do. So Senor Carrillo was not an authentic Cuban, not an authentic child prodigy. One assumes he was authentically homosexual, although at this stage I would not be surprised to learn that on weekends out of town he was married to Anita Bryant. There was a smattering of this thing a few years back, you'll recall. Oprah Winfrey, for example, 
was very smitten by the education of Little Tree, the heartwarmingly honest memoir of a Cherokee childhood, uh, which turned out to be concocted by a former Ku Klux Klansman who'd led an assault on Nat King Cole on stage one night in Alabama, and whose only previous notable literary work was George Wallace's Segregation Forever speech. That's right. Uh, the guy who wrote Segregation Today, Segregation Tomorrow, Segregation Forever was an Oprah's Book Club selection. But it's been harder to pull off since people became so touchy about cultural appropriation. And you're having to get a lot more inspired in your choice of identity in a crowded identity marketplace. Herman Carroll was a black guy from Detroit. Big deal. There are a zillion of them. Likewise, there's no shortage of Cubans. But an Afro-Cuban? Now there's a sweet spot. You were uh, Someone there who was a student at Cornell was asking you a question and prefaced the question by saying, Professor Carrillo, as an Afro-Latino writer, and then right at that point you even lost track of what the question was because you were focusing on the identification uh, and uh, the, what it says here, you asked yourself, well, is, is that what I am? Yeah. How, how do you think about that, this whole issue of this identity issue and, and who you are? Uh, the, the 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 Hispanic part, the African part, the whatever other parts there <laughs> right. are. All those parts that go together to make parts. Um, when you're listening to these public radio identity-obsessive interviews, I sometimes wonder how either party can stay awake through it all. But I guess if one side is just pulling the wool over the other, it must afford a certain satisfaction. And the other side, on the other hand, just gets off on the whole Afro-Cubanness of it. For example, if you're on NPR and you're going from, say, a political discussion about Chile uh, to an interview with Ash Carrillo, well, do emphasize how worldly and exotic it all is. It's about 4,000 miles from Chile's capital, Santiago, to Cuba's capital, Havana. The latter is the birthplace of the man we'll meet next as we present Bookend. And at the end of the interview, don't forget to throw in those sultry Latin rhythms. To kind of have this idea of U.S. sanctioned terrorism that, you know, is perfectly, seems to be perfectly fine. H.G. Carrillo, author of Losing Maya Spanish, the assistant professor of English at George Washington University, and also the author of a forthcoming novel that we hope we will see soon. Thank you for making time for us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been great to be here. To hear H.G. Carrillo reading some of his work and to hear his thoughts on authors he thinks deserve more attention, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And if you have an idea for a writer we ought to feature on Bookend, let us know. Our email address is metro at wamu.org, or you can send us a tweet. Our handle is WAMU Metro. Yes, the music of these people, riba riba. But just occasionally, in all the tedious cultural alienation chit chat, the interviewer would stumble accidentally somewhere near the truth. And uh, I guess again, a, a sort of a central idea here is that uh, uh, what is it that makes up a person's story? And, uh, you know, how do you determine what's fact and what's fiction? And at the end of the day, how much does it, how much does that matter? You know, does it really matter? Right. 
you know, it's it's amply demonstrated that people remember things that never actually happened. To oh them. yeah, I know. And it, the nicest part about it is that becomes the truth in which we live. You know that I mean that really is you know what ends up happening. Herman Carroll, Ash Carrillo, creative writer, in life, if not so much in art. Herman Carrillo writes like no other writer. And he definitely writes like no other writer that happens to be or comes from Latin American origins. Indeed. I wonder why that is. Since the COVID came along, we've been told to wear a mask. But he wore a mask before the COVID came along, and it worked out rather well for him. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 59, Ash Carrillo, Herman Carroll, not a Cuban writer, but maybe a Cuban heel. If you think of what he did to the man he lived with for five years, for whom the mask fell only in death. That's our show for today in this, the third birthday month of the Mark Stein Club. Thank you to members new and old, those re-re-re-upping for a fourth year, and those just coming upon us for the very first time. Let's hear from a brace of Jameses. James McNicholas of Southampton in the United Kingdom, a first-month founding member from Old Hampshire, not New Hampshire, says, Keep it up, Mark. My favourite content is the poetry and the song of the week, but it's all great, really. Thanks for making me smile. We'll have another poem for you on our next show, James. And James Olson... Joining us in recent days from North Dakota says, love the Coronacopia and gobble up all Stein content I can find. There's a lot of it around, James. Do prowl around Stein online. We have a brand new Laura's Links and my Tuesday notebook and our Memorial Day show. Thank you for all the kind comments about that. I'm very touched by them. And also my uh, Peggy Lee Centenary celebration. Lots of stuff all there at Stein online. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.